Welcome to this uh, special episode of The Perspectivalist. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. We're here at the American Vision headquarters with the president of American Vision, Gary DeMar. How are you, Gary? Doing well, doing well. Gary, it's been a delight to spend some time with you and uh, my friend George Reed here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And you got you got to meet a fellow Brazilian I did. at breakfast, and it was great to hear the two of you converse and tell secrets <laughs> so we couldn't understand you he was a force of nature and i look forward to seeing him many many times in the future we felt like we established a, a good uh, introduction to each other i wanted to talk about uh, several things but the one thing that uh, comes to mind is the uh, the recent death of dr gary north who was a, a close friend of yours and somebody who worked with you and shared labors with you for for many many years, what what what's a lesson or two from Gary North that you um, recall and sort of will carry on with you? Well, you know, one of the I always tell tell people uh, that I come from the Gary North school of writing. Yeah, uh, because no one's ever been able to keep keep up with with him and his writing. And Gary had this little phrase of "stick to your knitting." And he says, you know, you pick the project that you want to work on and just, you know, stick to it. And he he did that with that economic commentary. I mean, he yeah. he devoted two hours a day, you know, every six days a week for so many years. And he actually had a calendar set out as to when he would complete this thing. And it's like 30, 35 volumes on, on wow. the economic principles of the Bible that's all free online. Go to GaryNorth.com and you can find them. And I Gary, I respected Gary not only for his intellect, but just for his his diligence. I mean, his faithfulness. I mean, Gary North said he was going to do something. He he did it. Yeah. His mentorship. Um, if if you wanted to, if you wanted to learn something from Gary North, I didn't care who you were. Gary would sit down with you and lay it all out for you. Uh, and oftentimes, guys didn't take his advice because right. it was. It was a, it was turned out to be a lot of work. You would yeah. have to do this and this and this and this and this. Uh, you put all that stuff together, and, and, and Gary was a machine, and he kind of came across kind of machine-like and, <laughs> you know, personality-wise. But when you got to sit down with him and just kind of talk to him, uh, he was a remarkable guy on all kinds of all kinds of subjects and very encouraging. He was uh, my one of my daughters-in-law has epilepsy so she has seizures periodically mm-hmm. and she's had some and some fairly serious and I'd get together with 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 Gary and Gary would always say, how's Ka- how's Katie doing how's Katie oh. doing so he really had a heart a lot of people didn't see that in Gary but I I, I saw multiple sides of him because I knew him from the first time that my wife and I heard Gary North was we were um, uh, I was a student at Reformed Theological Seminary this was in the late 1970s so our yeah. relationship you know goes back over 40 40 years so wow. All of that together, you know, to say that uh, G- Gary North was really an example. If you want to have dominion in mm. the in the fullest sense of that, you've got to apply not the God's the gifts God has given you into those areas which are necessary in order to build that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He picked he picked his areas. He developed those areas, and uh, others ought to do the same. You know, pick your niche, stick to your knitting, do your work. Uh, and in the end, you know, 40, 50, 60 years later, you've got something that no one else has. Yeah. There's this uh, conversation we typically have about these pioneer figures like Gary, Gary North, who developed sort of this the scary Gary sort of uh, theme <laughs> right around them. But I think that's probably true with pioneer figures, that they're not um, known for their, you know, sweet, gentle dispositions. There are men that in many ways function 
in a, a very liturgical pattern. They know what they need to do, and they will do it. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, and it's funny, you might scary Gary. I remember this incident. This goes back way, way well back. This was in the early uh, part of the 80s when things were fall. You think things were bad now. They were they were bad the ni- end of the 1970s with Jimmy yeah. Carter, high inflation, and all that sort of thing. And Gary North was speaking here in the Atlanta area about the kind of the doom and gloom type thing. And one guy asked, raised his hand, says, Gary, how do you... How do you see Atlanta in this scenario? And Gary said, in my rearview mirror. <laughs> but you bring up this, this, this idea uh, on the History Channel. There's this series on there about the founding of these companies today that are multi-billion dollar companies. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you have Kraft, Birdseye, Hershey, all of these companies and how they got started with, I mean, at almost nothing. But they just, they stuck to it. They, I mean, Bird's Eye took a long time to figure out. He finally fi- figured out what, how you could freeze things and, and so the cell structure didn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Hershey, trying to find the right type of milk, milk chocolate. I mean, you go through all of these guys, Wendy's, McDonald's, uh, uh, Dunkin' Donut, all this stuff. It's interesting to go back and look at what those guys did with nothing uh-huh. and built these, these, these great, great companies because they stuck, they stuck to this yeah. thing. And it was the competitors, uh, Paps uh, Beer, and uh, I forget what the other one was, um, having to change when Prohibition came on, what you had to do in order to do all that. Great, great lessons in all those things. And Gary North was a, he was a guy to, 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 to watch, to see what it took in order to complete a project. And, and, and by the way, he, for Institutes of Christian Economics, he had no salary. Uh. A lot of people didn't know that. And cranked out a whole bunch of books. Mm-hmm. Essentially gave them away. You yeah. can go on to GaryNorth.com. Uh, so Ga- not only was was Gary focused on his direction, but he was one of the most generous guys in the world. He would just he'd give it away, give it away. Yeah. And uh, that's what you find at, at GaryNorth.com. Yeah. Sh- shift you a little bit to a conversation you're very familiar with, uh, eschatology. I'm here. I've seen a lot of your books in eschatology. You've developed uh, an incredible collection of books. When did you start your interest in eschatology? That's a that's a good question. The, my my f- first introduction to eschatology was in 1973 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I was on the on the Western Michigan University track and field team, and we were which was in Kalamazoo, and we had a meet in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I won't tell this whole story, but I ran into one of two high school friends who were in Ann Arbor, and I said, I'm going to be in town. How about we get together? So after the meet, we got together with one of them, and he started sharing with me the late great planet Earth. So this was 1973, and right. the late great planet Earth came out in 1970. And it was all the rage. That book sold 26 million copies in the 1970s. It was nominated as the uh, uh, the best-selling uh, nonfiction book of the, ni- of, the, of the 1970s. Wow. We would say it was probably the best-selling fiction book of the 1970s. <laughs> But that's that's another story. <laughs> a different conversation. Yeah. So and but through all of that, my 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 sports career was winding down. I was about to graduate from college. I was somewhat directionless. Uh, but the fact that this fellow was teaching the Bible at this point yeah. intrigued me. And uh, through that, and then uh, we talked earlier today. I ended up at, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a place outside of. Um, uh, Fort Lauderdale, a place called the Greenhouse, and that's where I, I heard the gospel. 
I had moved down there. I had become a Christian, but knew nothing. And um, I just ended up going to ended up going to seminary and so forth. And in seminary, I wanted to study a little bit about eschatology. Uh-huh. As I was reading through the Bible, the New Testament, I was just finding passages I just couldn't reconcile with what Lindsay was saying. And I went to some commentaries, and I just wasn't satisfied. It just didn't make any sense. And my the librarian was selling some of his books. And on the on the cart, there was a book by Marcellus Kick, uh-huh. Matthew 24. And I saw that, and I, I bought it. And that book changed my life because the what I was learning in, in seminary class and hermeneutics class is to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, and that's what Kick did. So that got me interested in the topic, but I was really interested in worldview, worldview stuff. Okay. How, did, how did the Bible apply to every area of life? I wrote a series of books called uh, God and Government, Applying the Biblical Principles of Government that is not synonymous with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, to every area of life. And I went out and did some lectures. I was working for American Vision at that time. And invariably, someone would say, why are we bothering with this? Because all the signs seem to be pointing that we're living in the last days. Yeah. And having some of Kick's book, you know, I was able to answer that a little bit, but I felt it was necessary for me to answer it in greater detail because people would ask other questions. And so I just did a deep dive into studying eschatology, and uh, because the topic was in the news, I did a lot of radio interviews and so forth on it, and um, it it just became something that I was interested in, needed to be done, popularize the eschatology stuff, uh, systematize it a little bit better than most people had done, Mm -hmm. cover more cover more uh, elements that you find in in a lot of uh, prophetic material. And like you know, Kent Gentry and I have kind of established a friendship over this, and this is kind of a niche that we're involved mm-hmm. in, and um, somewhat authoritative, you know, on the on the topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You so how many years have you been speaking and lecturing <clears throat> on the topic of eschatology? I probably started in the probably late eight, probably nineteen nineteen eighty eight. Okay, uh, right when. Well, the, the, the Seduction of Christianity had come out by Dave Hunt, David Hunt yeah. and he labeled certain people in the area of eschatology as New Agers. I thought, <laughs> wow, yeah, really? Uh, and he went on, um, he was on Jimmy Swaggart's show yeah. talking about that for quite some time. Yeah. And I've, I felt that that needed to be answered. And so Peter Lightheart and I yeah. wrote a book called The Reduction of Christianity. <laughs> yeah. That was the title that Jim Jordan had given. That was Jim's okay. title. Oh, which I, was, I didn't know which, that. Oh, which was perfect. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And if you get the first edition of it, it says the, the reduction of Christianity, um, the prophetic view of, of Dave Hunt. Yeah. And we got, we got kind of, we weren't sued, but we were pressured into changing the title because people thought that book was actually written by Dave Hunt. Oh, I see. So an, I see. anyway, so uh, that's what started it. That's what started it. And I had a number of debates with Dave Hunt. I probably about four or five debates with Dave Hunt, yeah. and then a number of debates with Thomas Ice. And this is something a lot of people don't know. This was in the 1990s when Greg Bonson was still alive, and some people may remember the John Ankerberg show. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And John Ankerberg invited uh, Ken Gentry and um, and Greg Bonson to come on to debate Thomas Ice and 
Dave Hunt on the topic of eschatology for the huh. John Ankerberg show. Uh, Greg called me, says, Gary, I'm not feeling well. Um, he says, you got to take my place. I said, Greg, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> it was really on, it was on, it was on Christian reconstruction, okay. which included eschatology. And I said, Greg, I said, you know, this, he said, yeah, you're the guy to do it. So, yeah. So, oh my. And, you know, I couldn't say no to Greg. And yeah. um, so we did it, but they never showed it. They never they did. They never showed it. Interesting. Uh, Ankerberg was just a pain in, <clears throat> pain in the neck. And it was, it was a crowd of about 500 people there. Oh. oh, it was huge uh, really? audience. It was in Dallas, in Dallas Theological Seminary. You had all these guys sitting in the in the in the auditorium. They had their Greek and their all Hebrew, these Hebrew out. dispensations. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was Dave Hunt. It was a, a table kind of like what we have our recorders on right now. Yeah, there were, there were two chairs on either side of that, and uh, uh, Thomas Ice was on the on the far left, and then Dave Hunt, and then this round table, and then uh, I was here, and then Ken Gentry next to me, and Dave Hunt even leaned over to me and he said, "I've never seen." I've never seen Dave do this before. Just the way he approached it, you know, talking about Greg Bonson, your buddy, and all that sort of. I mean, Greg, I mean, Greg Bonson, my buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, we were friends, but I never would have called him my buddy. Yeah. And it's kind of demeaning. Yeah. I mean, Greg, Greg Bonson was uh, one of the most brilliant apologists yeah, of, the, of, of the 20th of the 20th century. He was obviously operating off of someone else's script. Right. When doing all this, right. and it never aired. And uh, yeah. we just don't know whatever why. happened. I, I kind of think that I he would they wouldn't have listened to me to do anything like to, not to show it. It had to have come from Dave Hunt or somebody within the Ankerberg organization because it just made John Ankerberg look really bad. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So if you've been doing eschatology for this long, you've seen patterns of thought and argumentation develop from. Uh, premillennial dispensationalist historic whatever perspectives as you look at eschatological debates in the last uh, four decades what in your estimation has changed in terms of argumentation methodology what has been your experience in that regard the the thing that's changed the most is the fact that people are finding out that there are other positions out there okay uh, and it's so much so when when I first got on the radio and did all this, I was I was attacked. In fact, I did a show on, in, out in California for three evenings, uh, three hours each night. Okay. We sell it or make it available at AmericanVision.org as Gary DeMar Under Fire. Yes. But as time went on, I would get on these shows and it was like, Gary, I read your stuff or oh. someone else says I, I came to the same conclusion. So there's been a dramatic shift in what's taking place eschatologically, theologically, in the sense that people are look, taking a better look at it and saying, wait a minute, this just doesn't make sense. And I've always kind of questioned this, but I never knew how to answer some of the objections that I had. And and so there's you go online today and you post something on an eschatological position, and sometimes I'll, I'll do it just, just to participate. And it's amazing the number of people who will respond in a similar fashion about, wait a minute, you can you consider this verse, how about this verse? How do you, how do you support the uh, uh, pre-trib rapture? Where, 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 do, where does that come from? Uh, where in the Bible does it say that the temple is going to be rebuilt? Uh, Israel and Bible prophecy, why the gaps? What is the church age? Uh, and I, I just think the whole thing has changed dramatically. It doesn't mean that dispensational premillennialists and other 
people who are interested in Bible prophecy still aren't speculating. They still are. Uh, but I think the I think the debate has changed to such a degree that now people are looking at other things. I, I get more I get more offers to speak. In fact, I'm, today I'm going down to Lagrange, Georgia, to speak to pastors yeah. from a completely different theological tradition. And the fellow who wants me to come and speak wants me to speak on eschatology. Wow. I'm going to Mexico in in June, and I'm going to be I'm going to be speaking in in Mexico. Five talks on on eschatology that never would have happened twenty years ago. Yeah, Gary North wrote a book many years ago where he talked about that the future of he viewed the future of dispensationalism. He said there will be a time when there will be no more seminaries producing your traditional dispensational figures. Uh, I think he's been right in some ways. Do you think this exposure to various eschatological positions has moved the, the dispensational paradigm in a, more towards our direction of things? Well, I know there has there have been books put out by dispensationalists who have kind of gotten away from the more controversial sides uh, of of dispensationalism. Uh, that I, in fact, in this library, I've got about four or five volumes on them, but I haven't seen much from them lately. I think what's happening is is that a lot of these guys are going into the more historic pre-mill position yeah. rather than dispensational position. Which is a safer position historically it's a as well. Background, yeah. uh, so I think I think that's that's part of it. Um, Dallas, I think, when uh, Chuck Swindoll took over as president, that he even made some comment about they weren't going to be emphasizing the dispensational side of things. I think some of the commentaries that have come come out, there really aren't that many really solid uh, scholarly evangelical. Uh, uh, dispensational commentaries. You and I talked about uh, James Hamilton uh, right. earlier, and he has a, a premillennial commentary on on the Book of Revelation, uh, which makes a number of concessions. Uh, mm. He I, he and I debated, uh, and Sam Waldron did too, and he certainly doesn't like my position <laughs> at all. Uh, but there wasn't a dispensationalist among us. There was an all mill, uh, and then there was a pre mill, and then me as being a preterist, you know, post mill. Uh, so I, I think the scholarly side of things has changed somewhat too. More and more books are being published by non-dispensationalists on eschatology. Mm-hmm. N.T. Wright has entered this. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pigeonhole as to where he is on everything, but he's he's very preterist on, yeah. on many aspects of, of eschatology. Yeah. So speaking of preterism, a couple of things. Define for our listeners what it is and what is the hermeneutical appeal of preterism for you? Well, preterism, there's futurism and preterism. And uh, futurism is obvious that the majority of New Testament prophetic texts and some Old Testament prophetic texts are, are yet to be fulfilled. Yeah. They are futurist in their perspective. And there are a number of, uh, you got the you have dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. You have pre-trib rapture, mid-trib, partial trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. All of those are future future oriented. You've got pre premillennialism, both classic or historic and uh, dispensational, who who maintain that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years, although they would parse that differently. Mm-hmm. So those are futurists. All mills are futurists in many cases. They're in some senses they're they're similar to pre mills in that they see the end of history as being a fundamental decline and a rescue at the end with the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. They don't hold to a, any of the rapture positions. 
uh, a preterist is someone who believes that the majority, I'm just speaking in terms of this niche of, of eschatology, uh, would maintain that the majority of New Testament passages uh, refer to events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the attractiveness to that is it solves all kinds of pro- yeah. problems. Yeah. Now, some would say it creates other problems, but that's okay. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather be able to have to deal with a, f- a fewer number of problems than the, the, the paradigm itself. The yeah. And the, when I read Marcellus Kick's book, Matthew 24, you know, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And Marcellus Kick said, well, let's look at every other place where this generation is used. Mm-hmm. And every time it's used, at least in Matthew's gospel and Mark and Luke's, it refers to the generation to whom Jesus was speaking. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, it really, you can't really get around that. Right. And if you need a big fat book to try to prove otherwise, you're really not doing, you don't need <laughs> it. You should be able to read the New Testament, look at these types of phrases. Oh, Jesus is obviously talking about that, gen, that generation in, in, in um, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 12. In fact, I debated Tommy Ice, this was years ago, and I remember a date, debate I had with him, and he said, Every use of this generation in the gospel refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking, except in Matthew chapter 24. And I flipped that on him. I said, Tommy, what if I had used that argument? That's, you know, come on. Yeah. It's, the same, it's the same deal. So it solves a lot of problems. Uh, and, and, but what it does, it forces you to look at a, a lot of other time indicators, near and shortly, quickly, it can have a hard impact on you because you have to reevaluate a lot of stuff for it all. But I just think it's the most consistent way to read the New Testament. And uh, unfortunately, and I've said this a number of times, if you read the confessions, uh, they deal with what we would call futurist eschatology. Mm-hmm. But there's more, there's, there are more texts in the New Testament dealing with preterist eschatology than there are dealing with distant future eschatological passages. Mm-hmm. And yet the confession doesn't seem to make any reference to, to, to any of them. And I, I have a commentary over here on the, I think it's the larger catechism by Voss. I forget which Voss it is. Okay. And G.I. Williamson, it's kind of an annotated version of it. And so you go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory and um, and Voss says, well, that's the that's the second coming passage. Uh, and if you look at, I think if you look in the confession, they would they would deem that as a as a second coming passage. Mm-hmm. Marcellus Kick didn't, Ken Gentry didn't, I didn't, and a lot of other commentaries didn't. And G.I. Williamson, who wrote his own commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, says that Voss was wrong on this particular passage. Okay. He makes that notation in there. So I think people are are willing at least to take a second look at at this particular way of reading Bible prophecy. It's added a a pleasant coherence to biblical texts, not only the New Testament, but also in the Old, right? In other words, people have learned to consider prophetic and judgment passages in its ideal context, as opposed to taking the simple route of simply saying futuristic. Yeah, it's it's easier to, it's easier to say futuristic because you don't have to prove anything, right? right. But if you're a preterist. You got to prove. You got to prove everything. You got to look textually, historically, yeah. contextually. And, and you've the, the debate between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Remember the 
called Collision. If you haven't seen it, you, you ought to. It's really worthwhile watching. Mm-hmm. They were at Westminster Theological Seminary at one portion of this debate, and Christopher Hitchens brought up Matthew 24. And Doug, within a minute and a half, answered him. <laughs> yeah. And I've told people if, if that had been a dispensationalist, they'd still be there trying, you know, for the dispensationalist yeah. trying to convince him that that particular passage was already fulfilled. Now, it's not that Hitchens was convinced, but Hitchens didn't have an answer for it. Right. And it was interesting. We, uh, I was one of the producers of, of Collision, and uh, so I was up in, um, I don't know if it was in Washington, D.C., or I don't remember where it was, uh, but we sat down and had two meals with Christopher Hitchens, a okay. group of us did. And it was interesting when Doug was kind of explaining the biblical theological approach to a lot of these parables about how, you know, the Good Samaritan and that whole that whole parable isn't just about being kind to somebody and helping them out, but there's a whole theological context to that dealing with the nation of Israel. And Christopher Hitchens essentially said, you know, I've never I've never really heard yeah. this stuff before. Yeah. But yeah, once you read it, you say, well, of course that's what it's all about. I, yeah. So I do this talk on um, Israel's eschatology. Start with Israel's eschatology, you know, Matthew chapter 10. You know, this is, don't go, don't go to the cities of the Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you you will not finish going through this, the, the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. When I first read that as a very, very new Christian, I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. But now... Of course, well, I know what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Coming there isn't necessarily, we're coming isn't necessarily a, always a reference to this, what we would call the second coming. Right, right. You end up having to um, do away with clear language as opposed, in order to uphold some futuristic, like, for example, in Matthew 24, you have various uses of languages that are distinct to that time period. Yeah. So what does the futurist have to do? Well, you've got uh, you, there are a couple of things they have to do. Like John Mer- John Murray t- took a mixed approach on Matthew twenty four. He yeah. said some things refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy, and some of them refer to the distant future. I don't know how you separate those things out. Uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The Schofield Re- Reference Bible said, "Oh, that's really the race. This race will not pass away until all these things take place." Well, it's a different Greek word. Yeah. And then there's the logic of it all. Since the, the Schofieldism, dispensationalism is all about Israel getting their kingdom back. Mm-hmm. So if you read it, the Jewish race will not pass away until all these things take place, which means when all these things took place, the Jewish race passes away. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't make any sense. Then the other one is the generation that sees these signs will not pass away until all these things take place. So now you've got to get rid of this, mm-hmm. the near demonstrative this, then you have to add the generate that's that sees these signs. But all you have to do is go to verse 33, and Jesus is very specific. It's their generation that's is going to see these signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, or, or then the other one is um, this type of generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So in every case you have to change, you know, change the Greek the definition of a Greek word. You had to add word. You had to remove words. Uh, and in, in this particular case, you had to change the, the audience direction. Then you have to figure out how do you deal with uh, the second person plural that's used throughout the chapter when you see these things take place, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation. 
and uh, and then you have to add this thing about well, this type of generation will not mm-hmm. pass away. But that doesn't say this type of generation. Right. It says this generation, and almost everybody, if you go to Matthew twenty three thirty six, they all admit that the use of this generation in that particular passage refers to the generation whom Jesus was speaking. So why within two chapters does the definition of this generation change? And he's weeping over a specific place. Exactly, yeah. Um, so let's finish up with, uh, let's talk about some of the projects that you have coming up here. One of them tackles specifically the issue, the transition, the Matthew 23 to 25. Talk about that work that's about to be published by American Vision. Well, that's the, uh, you can get that right right there. This is uh, James Jordan. Uh, you know, Jim's been a good friend of ours. He was a member of, was he a member of your church? Providence, yeah. Yeah, yeah we went to seminary together, and uh, Jim is, so helpful in seeing these literary connections. He's just had a mind for this thing. You've, you, you've sat around with him. Yeah. I mean, he's just remarkable. And um, he he did this, this, he had this manuscript, Matthew 23 through 25, a literary, historical, and theological commentary, and was just sitting there. Yeah. And I said, you know, can we, I talked to Doug, and I said, we want to republish this. And he said, you know, go ahead and do it. Yeah. So it's beautifully typeset by Mike Bull. Uh, very readable, and it's all, it's all of Jim's uh, kind of nuances of dealing with prophetic texts and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture. I don't think there, there are very few footnotes in here dealing with commentaries and so forth. Uh-huh. This, is, this is Jim's work of you know, 40 or some years of looking at all these literary connections in the Bible, and you'll find a number of literary connections in the Bible that are in Matthew chapter 24, which help you see what's what's going on. The idea of the cloak, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, going to the mountains. I mean, you know, you, you, there's there's a, a Lot and his wife. You know, they went they went to the mountains. She looks back. I mean, all these thi- all these little literary things are in there. That if you know the Old Testament, it makes it, you know, makes Matthew 24. Tw- what's great about this? I I do stuff on Matthew 24, a little bit on 23. A little bit on 25, but Jim's pulled all of 23, 24, and 25 together because really to get the context of of the Olivet Discourse, you got to go back all the way to chapter 21. Mm. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. That is one giant scope of, of eschatological prose and analogies. And you, you get to chapter 21 where when Jesus is talking about all this and the, the religious leader says, He's talking about us, yeah. which puts this into its proper historical context. Right. This is, so this is great. This is Amer- This is available at American Vision as well. It's called Matthew 23 through 25. My good friend Gary DeMar, real joy to speak with you about these uh, wonderful topics and see the, the fruitfulness of American Vision overall after all these years. Thank you for your time, brother. Hey, thank you. Thank you for the interview. Oh, and thank you for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs>